Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Hello, I'm Kayla Williams, Senior Fellow and Director of the CNAS Military, Veterans, and Society Program. On April 16, 2020, my team and I were thrilled to welcome Dr. Jeanette Gowdry-Haney and Dr. Kylan Hunter for the Athena Leadership Project's inaugural event, a virtual conversation with three military leaders about how their different lived experiences shaped their leadership. The discussion was immensely thought-provoking, and we're so excited to present it to you. Thanks for listening. Kai and I created Athena to study and explore how diverse perspectives, particularly gender-diverse perspectives, shape and affect security outcomes. Athena began with our own experiences as women in the Marine Corps during a time of war and then as scholars studying gender and security. Over the past few years, we realized that substantive creative research into diversity and security outcomes is missing from the academic and policy dialogues and that the experiences of diverse leaders, particularly women leaders in the military, was where these conversations needed to start. Out of this, Athena was born. Athena is a 501c3, a brand new one, I should add, we, uh, we launched three days before the WHO declared a global pandemic, so good for us. Um, we are also adjunct fellows now with the Center for New American Security. Uh, CNAS is committed to bold, innovative, bipartisan research, and we are excited to partner with the Military Veterans and Society Program to host this program today. While we certainly did not envision our inaugural event as a virtual one occurring during a global pandemic, we are really excited to kick things off and grateful to CNAS and the military and veterans and society team for their support, their involvement, and belief in our mission. The mission at Athena is to study how gender diverse teams and leaders shape national security and to use those observations to inform leaders, policy, and structure. We plan to do this by building research around the study of leadership, gender, and security. But to fully understand what research questions need to be asked, we must first elevate the experience of diverse leaders, including women veterans, whose stories powerfully illustrate the value that a multitude of perspectives bring to security and are necessary for the development of policy, doctrine, and training. This vision is bold, but given the ongoing coronavirus uh, crisis, its need is becoming even more clear. The crisis is complex, and on the surface, it appears a great equalizer. Yet its impacts on health and economic security, and thus security as a whole, are disproportionately distributed. This begs for a diverse and creative response and for a stronger understanding of why this happened. Today, we're going to discuss perspectives on leadership, specifically how understanding of leadership changes, how different skill sets and experiences give us different perspectives as leaders, and how those perspectives inform leadership decisions. Some of us joined the military wanting to lead, and some of us grew into being leaders over time. For some, external circumstances put us in a leadership position, whether we were ready or not. And as we matured, many of us also found that our perspectives were deeply shaped by our previous experiences. Today, we're going to hear from a great group of leaders as to how they grew and how their experiences and backgrounds shaped the perspectives leadership styles and decisions that they made. So we have a fantastic panel today and we're really excited to introduce them to you. 
Um, we will give each panelist a brief introduction and then we'll launch into a series of questions for about 40 to 45 minutes. At the end, we will have time for a few audience questions as well. Audience members, please feel free to submit your questions for any or for all of our panelists um, by text using the Q&A function at the bottom of your webinar screen. We're also taking questions on Twitter at hashtag CNAS underscore MVS. Please use that hashtag CNAS underscore MVS to follow this conversation. And I will note that we are down to three amazing panelists today instead of four. One of ours could not join at the last minute. Uh, Michelle could not be with us today. We hope to have her on a future panel and really look forward to getting to talk to her and getting to know her a bit better in the future. First, let me introduce you to Misty Posey. Misty is an active duty Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel and a combat engineer by trade. She is a combat veteran and has led Marines at every rank in command from coast to coast and around the world. She's a master at not just doing pull-ups, I should add, but teaching Marines even remotely how to do pull-ups, and most recently served as the 4th Recruit Training Battalion Commander at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, South Carolina. She is a graduate of the Corps School of Advanced Warfighting, which speaks volumes about her leadership and her critical thinking abilities. Of note, Misty is pregnant and will potentially have her baby in the next week, so we are really thrilled to have her with us under these conditions. Additionally, Misty was recently chosen to serve as the senior aide to Marine Corps Commandant General Berger. As a side note, Misty taught me how to do pull-ups about five years ago, remotely, getting me from zero to four in just a few weeks. And I realized at the time, and have come to thank her for it later, that Misty's skill was not her pull-up coaching abilities, which were pretty significant, but her ability to help others, like me, work through our own lack of confidence in ourselves. Next, introducing David Foreman. Dave is an active duty Navy captain and a longtime friend. We were classmates back in the day at the Naval Academy. He is a submarine officer with patrols and deployments on five different submarines. Most recently, he served as the commanding officer of the USS Alaska, leading what turned out to be an award-winning tour for the submarine, which tells you a bit about Dave as a leader. He has also served as flag secretary to the Naval Academy superintendent and as the senior Navy fellow at CNAS. And he currently serves in the Chief of Naval Operations Office, working on sea-based strategic deterrence. Dave earned a master's in operations analysis from the Naval Postgraduate School and somehow manage, manages all of our class functions to include reunions, tailgaters, and keeping all of us connected without complaint. I have no clue how he does it. Finally, please meet Janine Gardner, an active duty Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel and KC-130 pilot by trade. Janine is also trained to fly the UC-12B King Air Transport aircraft, although she seems to much prefer the KC-130, returning to her home community as an instructor, maintenance officer, and detachment commander during overseas operations. She is a combat leader, lead, uh, veteran, and later served as the deputy director of the Marine House Liaison Office of Legislative Affairs, where I had the pleasure to get to serve with her in the office. You can imagine how two pilots uh, changed the, the hill for the better, I would like to say. Uh, she followed up her last deployment with selection to the Commandant Strategic Initiatives Group, where her work focused on the response to Marines United, gender integration, and pilot maintainer retention. She completed a fellowship with the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency and is currently a member of OSD's Strategic Thinkers Program, attending John Hopkins SICE um, School right now. All right, thank you. Let's kick this off and get to know our panelists. First, the main theme today is about how your experiences as leaders, primarily your experiences with gender and gender norms in the context of the military, 
shaped each of you as leaders. Let's start at the beginning. Please tell us a little bit about why you signed up to serve. When you first signed up, did you see yourself as a leader that day? And Misty, why don't we start with you? Okay, thank you. Um, so to answer your question, I uh, was recruited. I had no intention of joining the Marine Corps before a recruiter approached me. I was a valedictorian and I had a scholarship to college. I was all set. And one day a recruiter approached me and offered me the challenge of joining the Marine Corps. And in a span of about five to 15 minutes, the sergeant basically changed my entire life. And uh, so I'll just say that by the time he was done speaking to me, I had not only decided to apply for an NROTC scholarship, um, I'd also joined uh, the delayed entry program. So if I didn't get selected for the scholarship instead of going to college, I was gonna go to boot camp. And so really the point of my story is never underestimate the power of your influence. That sergeant um, in five to 15 minutes changed my life. Um, so I, I'm thankful to him for that. And I'm also thankful for the fact that he chose to talk to me because being a female, and someone who's four foot ten, I'm not the typical person that that was normally recruited at that time. And so, in addition to never underestimating the power of your influence, I would say don't ever underestimate the underdog. And also, did I consider myself a leader at that time? Um, I I consider myself a leader like in my community, but I didn't know how much of a leader I could be in the Marine Corps. I was just pretty confident that I could be a good follower at that point. Thank you for that. Um, I think we've never met in person. We met over the phone, over video a number of times. I don't think I realized you were four foot 10. That's a, anyway, um, neither here nor there, but thank you, Misty. Dave, what about you? Well, first, uh, Jeanette and Kai, thanks uh, so much for everything you've done with the Athena Leadership Project. It's been awesome to follow and to CNAS for hosting and honored to be here on this panel with these uh, amazing uh, folks here. Uh, when I, I started, uh, I was in high school looking to do something different from California originally. Both my parents had gone to college there. And uh, one day my dad said, how about the Air Force Academy? I didn't know what the service academies were. I ended up applying to all three. I was fortunate enough to, to have a visit at all three. And I just fell in love with the Naval Academy, so decided to go there. And uh, the rest was history. And I, I think I was comfortable in leadership positions, but certainly not as, as fine a point on it as there is now through all my the time at, at the academy and, and serving in the submarine force. Uh, comfortable, I, I was sports and the team captain on one of the teams and just some, some community service things. Uh, so it wasn't, wasn't a, a huge leap, uh, but I also had no idea what I was getting into because not, not a huge military history in my family. Thank you, Dave. And Janine, can we hear from you as well? Yes, so um, my experience joining the Marine Corps was probably as different from Misty's as our heights. And for those who have never, there's a great picture of me and Misty standing together. There's about a foot height difference between the two of us. So, um, whereas she was actively recruited without um, getting into my religious beliefs, I'll simply say that I did it because I felt like uh, I was called to do it but this was more toward the opposite of Misty's experience in that a little bit, because when I went in to see the Marine Oso, he told me to go away. He said, Utah girls don't join the Marines. And I was kind of like, oh really? Um, so before everybody gets upset, please recognize that this was 20 years ago. This sort of challenge was considered perfectly acceptable back then. I'm not excusing it. I'm just trying to give it context. And he has throughout my 20 years in the Marine Corps, remained my mentor uh, to this day. And yes, he's still in. So 
point is, once I kind of was like that annoying kid he couldn't get rid of and he realized, oh, okay, you know, he's, he was stuck with me, um, then he was all in, you know. And uh, that kind of goes to probably a theme that will come out a lot in this is my belief in that not only can people change, but they should change. We all should change uh, and learn and grow. And so um, as far as if I saw myself as a leader, I, I will say at that time I definitely didn't. I saw myself more as bossy because that's what I'd been called my whole life. I just knew that I liked to be in charge and I liked to help others. And so this kind of seemed like a good fit. And like I said, it's, it's what I felt called to do. Great. Thank you all. And um, now I want to turn to our, our next question that is going to be focusing on one of the sort of central themes of the military. And that is that often in the military, war fighting of some sort or being in, being in war, being in, in combat is equated with leadership. Um, how did you, when you thinking back to again, initially joining the military, how did you think about war fighting? And did that play a role at all in your, either your decision to join or how you viewed yourself um, joining the military? I think this is the time when we, we all joined pre 9-11. So um, that, just to give, give some context to everybody, you know, this is a, a thinking in the, in the pre 9-11 world, how did war fighting really play into your, your decision making and what did you think about it? So Janine, let's kick it off with you this time. All right. So like you said, um, I joined up in 2000 prior to September 11th. So to me, uh, modern wars back then were what the Persian Gulf War was, a few days of U.S. dominance, and then back to training. I was obviously quite wrong, not just about the nature of war in general, but what about the actual character of the Persian Gulf War was and what the character of the two wars that would come to dominate my 20 years in the Marine Corps was going to be. Um, I also didn't think I'd have much to do with uh, to do in any war. I accepted um, this as uh, women weren't allowed to fight. That's garbage, but we aren't allowed. And what can I do as a little second lieutenant? That's just the way it is. Don't rock the boat. Keep my head down and make it through the basic school, um, which is the class that you go through, the course you go through after you've become commissioned an officer, but before you go on to whatever job you're going to end up having in the Marine Corps, you're training for that. So obviously I've changed quite a bit between lieutenant and lieutenant colonel and what I believe I can do or what any person for that matter can do to affect change. Um, and for context, context, I was not a flight contract at the basic school. That's something that I gained while I was attending there. So initially, I thought I would likely be something in admin, you know, the okay jobs for ladies. And I had no idea what, if anything, that would have anything to do with any sort of war or conflict. Again, very little understanding of the, the character of war that we would go into. Yeah, a lot, a lot did change in that that first very formative time um, as a lieutenant. Uh, Misty, how about you? Yes. Uh, so I actually had a very similar experience. Um, obviously, joined after the Gulf War, before 9/11. So, I mean, I thought if we did go to war, that it would be quick. Um, and I thought if we did go to war, not only would it be quick, but I wouldn't have a decisive role to play. Um, again, just echoing um, those comments that being a female uh, serving in the Marine Corps, I was restricted to serving in any kind of ground combat arms unit or MOS. 
and I, at the time I thought that that must have something to do with being, you know, something to do with being female, something to do with estrogen. I figured that the Marine Corps must have known something that I didn't, that meant that I didn't have the right mindset uh, to grasp tactics and, and uh, strategy and operations. And the, the interesting thing is it just affected my perception of how much I had to offer the Marine Corps, um, my talent, skills, and abilities. And the funny thing is, is I'm not a, nobody would have ever characterized me as a, someone who lacked confidence or someone who wasn't assertive at that time. I was very confident, very assertive, but the simple fact that I was barred from entering ground combat arms, MOSs and units affected maybe on a subconscious level, my perception of, of how much I had to offer the Marine Corps. Um, I certainly wasn't afraid uh, to go to war and to go to combat. I just didn't think that number one, it was going to happen. And if it did, that I would be allowed to play a central role and that even if I was allowed to play a central role, I didn't think I would be good at it. Dave, um, any, any different experiences? As the, as the sole man here on the, on the panel when uh, we're thinking about war fighting, did, did your experiences, uh, how were they the same or, or different? So I, I, be, I think the, Thanks for the question. I, I don't have, know if I have a lot to say that would be a value to our audience being in the submarine force. We, we've definitely been influenced by world events, uh, but but not given my service and the nature of just being on submarines. Uh, in on the the main things that we'll be talking about, I think we were somewhat insulated. Uh, so I just don't want to take up a lot of time answering that question that I don't think it will be a value. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of pass if that's okay. Pass away, we'll get you on the next one. In fact, um, this one. <laughs> um, gender and gender norms, as we've kind of talked about a little bit already, play a role in the military and war fighting. I actually didn't know if the uh, your comments, especially for Misty and Janine, in the previous question would lead into this one so well, but they really did. In fact, um, for both of you, I think Kai and I in the background, I know our audience can't see the gallery view like we can, but Kai and I were all sitting here nodding along um, to everything you were saying. Uh, the idea that women weren't really going to have a big role in the fight, um, that maybe the Marine Corps knew something we each didn't about our individual capabilities and, and what war looks like. Um, and I, I remember very well, I think I was in the same room uh, as Janine at the time when I realized that for lack of a better phrase, they, there weren't any other adults in the room. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but that there was, there was immense room for change and for growth uh, at, at leadership of every level and that we could contribute in very important ways. So with that in mind, um, did your understanding of different gender roles and the challenges and obstacles that women and men face at different times evolve over your career? Um, and if so, how did they evolve and what experiences led to those changes for you? And uh, let's start with Dave again, because you passed. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so I do feel like I have some more to contribute and uh, you know, maybe a, a different perspective. Uh, so start out by saying, uh, first, I'm still active duty. These are all my own personal opinions, not Navy policy or anything like that. And uh, that's the first part. The second part is I've never been anti-women. I, I certainly you know, hope nobody's ever think I'm a chauvinist of any kind. Uh, I, I will admit that at the academy and then early in my naval career, I had some of the views that you are actively and rightfully challenging today, where I, I would come to unfounded assumptions uh, based on gender alone and, and where it's really not productive and it prevents the Department of Defense and in all branches of achieving its, its max potential. 
and and I and to talk about how I changed through that. Um, joining the submarine force, I I joined because I did some summer cruises, and I just love the camaraderie of the crew. I was planning on being a pilot, but my submarine cruises went better. It wasn't because there were no women on submarines, or anything like that. Uh, so, and then in the 20, 2005 time frame, I was a department head, and I think Jeanette, I had discussed this with you before. Uh, those were the first discussions that, that women maybe will be joining the submarine force. And, and this stuck in my memory because it was so pointed and perhaps I was surprised that I heard myself say it, but, but I did say the line, uh, maybe not exactly, but uh, the, the day the women join the submarine force will be the day that I get out of the Navy. Uh, yet now we obviously have women on submarines and I'm still in the Navy, so I, I didn't stick to that, uh, thankfully. And it was, a, it was a shallow and unfounded, and I, I didn't really analyze it. I was just, I was stressed out as a department head at the time, and I just thought it, it was one less thing to deal with. It was probably the extent of my thinking. Uh, my tour that followed that was at the Naval Academy, and, and this is what changed, and I think the theme that's applicable to all officers uh, across all branches is I would say not a formal education, but, but a deliberate exposure uh, to these issues to expand thinking. And what I mean by that was a couple things happened when I was at the Naval Academy. Uh, as, I, as I looked at being my next submarine tour, which is going to be as the executive officer and thinking that women could be on my submarine, I wanted to do a good job as a leader. And to help me prepare to do that, I, I went to a, a couple of events. Uh, one was the Sea Service Leadership Symposium. Uh, which by the Sea Service Leadership Association, which I'm not sure, I may have gone to that just for leadership because it's actually a, basically a women's leadership organization, but it's not obvious. And uh, so I went and I was, not surprisingly, grossly outnumbered. And that was the first uh, aha moment I had where I looked at all these capable women around the room and realized that I had been blind to those perspectives of how you take care of women in the military for my whole career. I didn't, I didn't really think about it at the academy, and then obviously being in the submarine force, a non-issue. Uh, so uh, eye-opening moment for me, and that's what I'm talking about, like deliberate exposure, uh, clear change in, in my thinking uh, coming out of that. And one other thing happened was uh, because uh, that uh, women in submarines was on the horizon, uh, the battalion officer, one of the senior officers on the yard, uh, they, there was, we make sure that we have everything covered. Uh, we do aim to have minorities and all the, all the service uh, branches aviation, SEALs, uh, subs, uh, surface, and so on in those senior leadership roles. Captain Phillips hosted some talk, working groups to, to talk about women in the, in the military. And I, I went, and I remember there was a youngster, so for a sophomore, second year midshipman, who had hoped to go submarines. And at the time, this was in the 2008 timeframe, and we didn't even start making the actual movement to bring women on submarines until 2010. She went to the Naval Academy hoping that she would be able to go submarines and when it was not an open uh, field for her to go into. And the policy changed while she was there and she was able to apply for the program by the time she graduated in uh, 2013. So just really moved by that, again, seeing an individual clearly talented, wanting an opportunity, not having it, and then getting it, uh, seeing, seeing the value and changing that policy. So I think uh, I've got some more things I can say. I don't want to take too much time. But, but going through that, leaving the Naval Academy, my views were very different than when I um, entered following my department head tour. And then by the time I got to command, <clears throat> excuse me, I was ready to, I, I hoped I was going to have an integrated crew and the ship that I, was, uh, that I got for command was not integrated. And I felt like I, I, I missed, out, missed out on that, that leadership like opportunity and challenge and just to see how that went and to be a part of that submarine history. Uh, so pretty much a 180 in, in my mind.
and I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and stop there. Thank you, Dave. And uh, I know we're getting some questions from the audience as well uh, while you were speaking and one comment thanking you for your candor. So thank you for your candor for being part of this. And, uh, and to the audience, please feel free to submit more questions via the Q&A button on the bottom. Uh, so Misty, can you add your point of view to this, please? Yes, thank you. Um, I, I also want to thank Dave for his candor. That was, that was um, very enlightening um, for, for me. I, I guess you could say it took about eight years for me to realize that I had just as much to offer the Marine Corps as, as any other uh, Marine. And, and let's just be, you know, more specific. I, I, it took me about eight years to realize I had just as much to offer as, as a male Marine. Um, and, and I don't mean I have more to offer. Just, I just have as much to offer as any other Marine, whether male or female. And, and what I mean by that is I, I realized after the fact that I came in, with this feeling of uh, being an imposter. So like the imposter syndrome where I felt like any success I had was probably due to luck, not necessarily due to skill. And again, I, I don't think this is operating consciously. I think this is kind of in the background subconsciously. If I got selected for a, a uh, prestigious position or, or billet, um, I thought maybe in the back of my mind, part of it was, you know, I was a quota. I was uh, that token female that maybe got a, an upper upper hand in the selection process because they wanted to have a female present. And it about, I'd been in the Marine Corps about eight years before I finally started to realize that maybe my success was due to the fact that this just happened to be a good fit for me. That that recruiter who spoke to me um, so many years before saw something in me that I didn't, you know, necessarily see in myself and that it just, I just stumbled into this profession that happened to be a good fit. Um, I love being a Marine, and so it took several instances where I was succeeding for me to, to really kind of sit back and realize that, again, maybe it wasn't so much luck, and, you know, I could give you a lot of specific examples, but those aren't really uh, what's important. I think the, the most important thing here is that, again, I wasn't someone who lacked confidence, so if, if someone like me could, could sit back and, and question my value or worth to the organization, I think anybody can. And it's not just being a female, it could be anyone who's in a non-dominant group, anyone who's in a, in a minority group. And I will say that if it wasn't for uh, different leaders at different times, um, stepping in and, and having higher expectations uh, for me than maybe some other people did, I, I don't think I would have been successful. That's a great point and thank you for making it. Um, and if I could do a, a quick follow-up, just. You mentioned eight years. Um, was there something specific that happened around then, or was that the accumulation kind of of the experiences of you realizing that you were good and can contribute and had skills to bring to bear? It was a combination of the two. So it was just, you know, I, I got selected as a lieutenant to go on a mew, and um, it was a competitive selection process. And at that time, I definitely thought that I fooled them. I, they, I'm not as good as I think I am. Some, and, and I was afraid that I would be found out as a fraud. And then I got selected for another uh, assignment. And I'd say at the eight-year mark, around that time, I had finished my tour as a coyote at a TTCG in 29 Palms, which was the old CATS program. Then it became Mojave Viper. Then it became, I think, Enhanced Mojave Viper, then ITX. But bottom line is that was a, a position as an engineer that, that no other uh, female uh, woman marine uh, had had a sorry marine woman had had filled 
And when I first got there, there was a lot of step, a lot of uh, people who worked there that, that didn't think I belonged, but they had never seen me perform. And they immediately wanted to send me away to a different unit before they had ever seen me perform, even though they were short staffed. And there happened to be a staff sergeant engineer who was in the shop who, who stepped in and was talking to these majors. And he said, hey, why are you sending the LT away? Or no, I was a captain at that point. He's like, why are you sending the captain away? We need her. We're short staffed. And they said, she's female. And he said, well, the only requirement is that you be an engineer. And she's an engineer. He said, I kind of heard about her. I heard she's, she's decent. Why don't we give her a week or so to test her out and see how she does? I didn't know this, these conversations were taking place. So he convinced some of the other leaders to give me a shot. And I didn't know that that was my chance to prove myself. Um, so for about a week, I did some, some training on the live fire ranges. And at the end of it, that staff sergeant went and told the majors, he said, hey, I want to keep her. She's good. And what I learned from that was that as an engineer who had never been allowed to serve in a ground combat arms unit with the CEB, with the Combat Engineer Battalion, that I could still come there. And I had that ability to, to learn tactics, to understand um, our role as a combat engineer, because before that, I had only served as a, at an engineer support battalion doing mostly construction and building bridges. And so what I learned was that um, if you're given the opportunity to prove yourself, whether you're female or whatever the case may be, if you're given the opportunity to prove yourself, most people will, will give you a chance and most people will accept you and they'll follow you. Um, what I also learned is that not everybody is given a chance to prove themselves. Um, and I'm, again, I'm so thankful for that staff sergeant. We're still friends today for giving me that chance and, and kind of speaking up on my behalf. I learned about all of this after the fact. He, he told me why I was suddenly given a, a week to train before they were going to send me away and then they changed their mind and kept me at the unit. So sorry, I know that was a, a long explanation, but um, it's, it's kind of a good story. That was a great story and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you gave it that story to us and that, that's a great story for multiple reasons actually. As a researcher, Kai and, Kai and I are both going like, hmm, we can use this. Um, so thank you so much, Misty. And now, Janine, same question for you and I look forward to hearing your response. So um, for, first off, um, one thing that I want to just riff off of Misty and, and Dave for a second before I go into my answer. Um, you might hear me and Misty a lot saying female, 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 female Marine. And I can't speak for Misty, but I know for myself and I suspect for her and all the ladies of our generation, when we first joined the Marine Corps, WM, woman Marine was fairly pejorative. And so it is, it is like a reaction to us to say woman Marine. It's it's hard for us because there's a negative connotation to it. So if you hear us say female Marine, it's not us trying to dehumanize. It is, it was to us in many ways, it is the, it is just referencing gender, but we're still Marine, you know, and that, and I'd much rather just be called Marine. I think all of us would, but that was like a step for us. I don't know, Misty, do you agree, disagree? Is that? Thank you so much for saying that. Cause you picked up on my, my, uh, my um apprehension or i i like yeah. female marine no i mean to say marine woman but then i said woman marine and it was just i came full circle so thank yeah. you i thank I, you. I just wanted the so you guys can see like how much we're all affected by this and i see jeanette and kai nodding it's definitely it's i think it's a generational thing hopefully younger uh marines who happen to be women don't feel this way 
Anyways, um, also, uh, amen, Misty, with the imposter syndrome. Thank you for bringing that up. That is something that I have struggled with my entire career, still do. And for Dave, I just want to say thank you for being so open. And I'm, I'm going to say something that I was not going to say, but I've, you've given me the courage to do it. So here I am. I very clearly remember having a discussion with my then boyfriend very quickly after that fiance, now my husband of over 19 years, fellow Marine, the other Lieutenant Colonel Garner. Um, he and I were at the basic school in Quantico, Virginia in 2000. And I remember telling him very clearly, I didn't think that no woman would ever be commandant of the Marine Corps because the commandant of the Marine Corps should always be a grunt, someone in the infantry. And women absolutely should never be in the infantry. I had very much drunk the Kool-Aid at this point and, and believed that with every fiber of my being. And it took it took a while for me to start challenging these beliefs for starters. The commandant does not need to be a grunt. Let's be real. Um, and obviously women belong everywhere, <laughs> not just uh, in the non-ground combat arms. So, but that's a, a moot point. But I, I did want to share that I did firmly have those beliefs 20 years ago, and I'm glad I've changed and evolved. So, um, to the question, um, so I've already kind of addressed it a little bit, but also uh, as far as gender roles, I'll say initially I was very desperate to fit in, especially in my first squadron where I was the only woman for a while. I tried to suppress my feminine tendencies as best I could and tried so hard to be one of the guys, yet I kept feeling like I was constantly getting iced out. Eventually one day, and again another day, I remember clearly I came home from a flight, uh, was really upset, definitely was crying lots of crying, never in public, like never ever where another Marine could see me. But I basically just said, screw it. They're going to hate me no matter what I do. So I may as well just be myself. Then at least I won't hate me. And to symbolize that change, I went to, I drove to Claire's boutique and I brought, bought a sparkly pink pen that still had black ink in it because obviously I was going to stay within regs um, and stuck it in my flight suit pen pocket and then also put a Star Wars sticker on one side of my flight headset because I also tried to keep the fact that I like to dress up in costumes and go to sci-fi and fantasy conventions a secret because again I didn't want to be different I was terrified of being different um, so I did all that and the weirdest thing happened. A lot of my peers started to be friendlier to me. I mean, there were still plenty of dudes who stayed jerks, um, but at least they seemed to trust me more, especially regarding my skills in the plane, because trust is, is critical in a multi-crewed aircraft. So like Missy, I didn't know conversations and things that were happening at the time but about a decade later I was catching up with an old friend from that first squadron and the subject came up and he nodded his head remembering and he said before you were obviously fake and no one felt like they could trust you because you weren't willing to trust us with who you were once you decided to be your genuine self we knew that we could trust you and at least in this guy's case Timmy awesome dude um, he and I became lifelong friends the point is, you're never going to win over everybody. It's not a popularity contest, nor should it be. But being a professional who works hard is also a genuine and is also a genuine person is critical. What you as a person brings to the table, that bit that is uniquely you, is so critical and so important. And 
to be honest, is what everybody wants and needs because we need to have that diversity of thought. The last thing the Marine Corps or any institution needs is carbon copies because we're gonna have carbon copy in thought and that could be extremely dangerous. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Because I think that's for for all of us in some way. You know, the the military is so much about uniformity and conformity, especially in our our younger years. It's we do everything we can to just not be noticed, not stand out. You know, we, we go through all of these things to try to be one of the uh, you know kind of whether it's one of the guys. Um, and I think even men to an extent fall into that of just wanting to act like everyone else and not being um, willing to bring some of their own uh, experiences to bear. And that's really what I want to dig into with this next question is that, you know, no matter what our, our backgrounds are, we all bring our own experiences, scarves, perspectives to our, our leadership, especially in high pressure situations. I think everyone uh, of our panelists has been in situations that are stressful, whether they are from external events that have happened, you know, thinking about uh, combat zones we've de uh, deployed to, internal events that are happening, whether it's conflict within or among groups that we have uh, led or commanded. So now we're going to um, ask each of you to, to share a time and experience when your, your diverse background, the thing that makes you unique, helped you in a leadership um, situation. So Janine, let's start with you. So, um, you know, the, there's a difference um, in emotional intelligence, sometimes a different kind. I know that um, different times I've been able to perceive or tell when, you know, somebody was not doing okay that perhaps had gone right by some of my peers. Um, and I know that, and I really started to notice this on my first deployment, um, several times Marines of all ranks felt a lot more comfortable talking to me about their issues um, automatically just because of my gender, which is, uh, it, was, it was great because it was my first deployment and I was the only woman and it made me feel like I was an integral, important part of the squadron. But, you know, also a, a bad thing for various reasons because now we're getting into gender stereotyping and, and things like that. But at the time, it was really critical because I could take these um, issues that I had been made aware of and go quietly talk to the squadron XO and let them know that so-and-so has this going on at home, that going on at home. And, you know, we could schedule appropriately because we were in combat. And, and, you know, nobody was looking for a reason to not schedule somebody on the flight, but it was important to know you needed a, a little bit more TLC. Um, one thing I do want to talk about real quick, though, is how other women have changed my perspective, because I, what I don't want is there to be this message that, you know, men are blind to experiences and perspectives of women. We all are blind in, in some degree and in many areas. For me, it was about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, where I had several um, female majors talk to me about the lack of maternity dress blues in the Marine Corps. And as somebody who has never needed to wear a maternity uniform in the Marine Corps, I, and nor did I know how, quite frankly, hideous they are. Um, 
And uh, I just like really escalated the levels of my awareness on this. And it just was like this huge blind spot I didn't know I had. And it wasn't one of those, you know, the Marine Corps was trying to be, you know, discriminatory against pregnant Marines. It just, I think, was a blind spot that the Marine Corps had. And so I ended up uh, with the with these ladies, the three of us ended up writing um, a paper and it ended up getting published in the Gazette. And as far as I know, I do believe the Marine Corps Uniform Board is addressing it. I don't know what will come out of it, but um, point is, I was blind until someone opened my eyes. And I think that that happens to a lot of us, not just men. Thank you for that, both for being a, a real human leader. I know you were um, for me too, and uh, have been in like in my in in my own life, um, and so that that is something that really shows through. Um, Misty, how about you? Thank you, Kai. Um, I was just going to say thanks, Janine, for for those comments because I'm 43. This is my first uh, biological child. I I adopted my uh, five nieces and nephew about 12 years ago and I have a stepdaughter. So even though I have six kids, this is my first that I'm um, giving birth to. So I, I was also blind about those uh, same same topics because I had never had to wear uh, those uniforms. And yeah, they, they are working on it. I actually am in touch with the uniform board, so I'm excited. Um, I won't get to wear the new maternity dress blues, but others will. Um, so, but to answer your question, Kai, um, I think for me, it's, it's easy. Uh, being four foot 10, that, that I think maybe even more so than being a female or maybe as much as being, being a, a, a Marine woman um, has impacted me in the Marine Corps. And by that, I mean, um, you know, people look at you, they see that I'm a, a Marine woman and then they see that I'm short and they make assumptions without meaning to about what, what I'm capable of. And, you know, when you expect less from your Marines and sailors or your followers, um, they tend to deliver less. And I can tell you that when I was training to become a Marine, um, you know, I, I got my art NRTC scholarship for my grades. It was not for my physical prowess. I never played sports. Um, I was a baton twirler for one year when I was five, and that was it. So when I was training in college to become a Marine officer, um, I was not very good at any of the physical stuff. I couldn't run. I couldn't do push-ups. I certainly could not do pull-ups. And I, moreover, I didn't didn't know if I would ever get to the point where I could um, overcome those challenges. And the point of my story is, is that when you expect less, people deliver less. Um, however, there's always one or two leaders along the way that expected more of me. And then my personality is such that, you know, I want to do well. And the whole reason why I learned pull-ups was because I couldn't do the obstacle course. And I knew I had to be good at the obstacle course to graduate officer candidate school. And being four foot 10, I had to be able to pull my weight, literally do a pull-up because taller um, candidates could kind of use their height as their advantage, meaning taller female candidates who couldn't do a pull-up could use their height as, a, as an advantage on the obstacle course. And uh, so I had to learn a pull-up. And there were just happened to be the right leaders at the right time that gave me the right tips to succeed. So I think my height has made a lot of things harder for me. But because there were good leaders who helped me out along the way, I was able to overcome that disadvantage. And I think the advantage that that gives me is um, kind of what uh, Janine was saying, that it, it makes me more sympathetic, more patient, more understanding 
with other Marines and sailors and, and even civilians who are struggling, I, I kind of understand where they're coming from because I had to learn the hard way. And so I think it gives me a unique perspective. I'm able to maybe give them some tips to how to overcome those challenges, how to overcome self-doubt. And so I, I'm very passionate about um, that aspect of leadership, um, motivating others and giving them practical tips to optimize their training or their education or to believe in themselves so that they can become the best uh, leader and follower, the best Marine, the best sailor they can be. Wonderful. And Dave, um, how about you? Uh, tough, tough question. Interesting one. Uh, two things came to mind for me, uh, different, different aspects. The first one is uh, I have three children, uh, a boy, a girl, and a boy. And when my daughter was seven years old, we were stationed in Hawaii. They had gone to the big island, and uh, we had a, a horse riding accident. And she, she ended up uh, – she's okay now and doing great in, in all aspects of her life. But then she, uh, she fractured her, her skull, and we didn't know if we were going to lose her. So pretty, pretty traumatic experience, and that's been an anchoring event in my life the whole time, uh, so much so that I told my crew that when I first got into command uh, so they understood where I was coming from. And that, that's how I separate out a lot of things that are important and not important. So obviously we had to take care of a submarine and that was, that was important. But, but when you come off of those immediate things, a lot of other things, you will address them, but they're not worth getting spun up about. Uh, so I shared that with them. And then another one professionally uh, was back in the, I forget the exact date, uh, but it was probably the 2001 timeframe. Uh, we unfortunately had a, had a submarine have a, a mishap with the Japanese fishing vessel that sank it and led to a loss of life uh, out in Hawaii. And uh, I was there about a year and a half after that on my second submarine. And obviously a whole series of things went incorrectly on that day that led to that catastrophic event. And we were doing something not, not that similar, but um, it was, it was the, the lesson was that we had taken like one step down that road where things started to go wrong. And, and where you might think, oh, those guys were terrible. That could never happen to me. Uh, it, it was a very near and dear to my heart because I was the officer of the deck driving the submarine at the time. And it was my then executive officer that, that provided the backup that said, hey, let's just stop here, take a deep breath and get this right. Um, so that, again, anchoring professionally for me, that when you think something really bad can't happen to you or you can't make that mistake, that, that it happens to the best of people. Uh, so to never get too arrogant, arrogant and stay humble. Uh, that I, I, I thought back to that moment many other times in my professional career about uh, how, how that can happen to anybody. And uh, I think Janine has a follow-up on that she wants to bring up for a second. Oh, I was just going to jump in with Dave's comment about um, that because I think particularly the three of us aviators on here, we've all lost dear friends to aircraft mishaps where, you know, I think prior to it, you're always so judgy, like, oh, I would never do that. And then you start reading the mishap reports and you're like, oh, okay, no, I've done that. I would just, clearly I was freaking lucky. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, you were. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And, and Dave, thank you for that. It's, um, we, we've been getting, we were going to do a lightning round, but actually Kai and I were just going back and forth. We've get, gotten so many good audience questions that I think we're going to jump into the audience questions looking at the time. Um, so for the first one here, this is from one of our uh, audience members. As a woman, I have found it difficult to bring men from a passive role, in other words, I'm not sexist and I think it's wrong, um, to the role of an advocate, for example, calling out toxic behavior or language from their, uh, with your male peers. 
how do you think women can broach the topic of creating more male advocates? Um, so anyone want to go first? Janine? You know, I'm not afraid to talk, so uh, I'll try to keep it quick. Um, when Marines United happened, um, my husband and I were stationed apart at the time, and he came home right after it happened a couple days to visit for the weekend. And about a day into the visit, he looked at me and said, are you mad at me? Like, what am I? I didn't do this. Obviously, I, I, I'm a supporter. I love women in the Marine Corps. I think this is a great, I mean, I'm married to one. And and it wasn't until that moment where and I started and I was and I realized I was angry with him and clearly my body language and my interactions with him had, had gone to that. And I said, you know what? Yes, you're not one of those awful guys who was on the Marines United group, but you know what you haven't done? You haven't opened your mouth. Every person speaking out against this is a woman. Why is it incumbent on the seven percent of the Marine Corps to correct the other ninety-three percent? You know, so we had an extremely frank conversation that I think only, you know, somebody been married that long could be. And I, and, but what I'm saying is at that point, and he was like, his eyes were opened. And again, my eyes had been open only like 30 seconds prior as I understood why I was angry with him. And so he started being very vocally advocating as well. Um, and since then, I have had these conversations in a far more professional manner um, with fellow Marines and other fellow service members, sometimes, sometimes I do get emotional, and but I always apologize afterwards. Um, and I think that's the the biggest thing is to not be afraid to have those what can be viewed as sensitive and uncomfortable conversations. Thank you. And Dave or Missy, do either of you want to add something to that? Yes, ma'am. I, I was just going to uh, echo what Janine said. I think you create advocates by um, dispelling myths. And a lot of people don't realize that they hold these assumptions and certain assumptions that are that maybe aren't accurate because they're basing that knowledge on their own experience and they assume their own experiences is the same as others experience or other people's experiences. And so I found same thing with Marines United that some of these leaders I looked up to were kind of dismissive of it and were kind of saying, well, isn't that what you know, I hate to say it, but isn't that kind of what, what, you know, like, what do you expect when you send pictures like that of yourself? And, and, uh, I realized that it was just the lack of advocacy was due to a lack of understanding and the understanding came through a dialogue, just like what Janine was saying. And I, I talked to one of my leaders and I was like, sir, did you know that my, my picture was on Marines United? And he's like, what? I said, yeah, I was in camis in uniform with my rank at a, uh, promotion ceremony and someone posted my picture and they were saying all sorts of things and I you know and a friend of mine uh, a marine I, I who I served with he was a lance corporal corporal got out you know 15 years ago is the one who let me know that it was on there and he was defending my honor and I said you know it's not you know I said it's even just being a, a marine woman in the marine corps to some people they feel like that's stealing their valor and, and they have a problem with it. And when we had that discussion, then he came full circle and realized and, and admitted and said, yeah, and I guess you're right. You know, even sending, you know, uh, photos of yourself, that that's not okay either for people to exploit that. So it came, you know, he came full circle and, and uh, understood the situation better than he became an advocate. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully it's not a, all great comments, uh, my, my perspective. I've been through a lot of training in the submarine force, uh, both when we changed the don't ask, don't tell policy and when we uh, integrated women onto submarines. 
So as, as I alluded to earlier, is that I think both the recognition of that when incorrect actions are happening and the behaviors, the response to it, being mentally ready to act on those uh, can be learned, but they, they do need to be taught. So a combination from a service perspective and also the individual unit leaders uh, to make it an issue and incorporate it into the continuing training program so that the people can be aware. I mean, Misty, you know, like, as you said, that when you found your, you were notified that, that you were, um, your picture was posted, I think a lot of your coworkers would have been shocked. And it creates that, that disconnect uh, from what they think reality should be and what it actually is. And then you got to talk about it just like we are here uh, so that they're mentally prepared to act uh, appropriately when they, they see the, the injustices and, the, and just things how they should not be and the, the departure of the core values that we each hold in our respective services that truly aren't all that different and what we're seeing in action. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, we're getting some really, really good questions from the audience. Well, we're not going to be able to reach, get to all of them, but we will be following up on, um, on Twitter with answers that we source from our panelists on, on all of the other questions. Um, so if we don't get to your question during this hour, rest assured, we will make sure the panelists get it and answer it and we will be putting those uh, answers out on, on Twitter. Um, but for, for this question, um, Dave, we're going to put you on the, the hot seat for a moment. Um, both Misty and Janine talked about imposter syndrome being something that was very, very real, um, especially at the beginning of, of their careers. Um, going to ask you real bluntly, did you ever feel that you had any imposter syndrome? Um, and if so, or if not, do you think it's something that's very gendered or is there a universal aspect to imposter syndrome in doing these, you know, these high stress and important jobs? Great question. I think, I, I do not think it's gender specific in, in other areas in my, my role as, as captain, I've seen a lot. We're very intrusive into the lives of our sailors and the submarine force by necessity uh, for our security clearances and, and appropriate protection of nuclear weapons and so on. Uh, and then also as class president, I've been privy to some information just because people have entrusted me in that role. Uh, so certainly not gender specific. And I think men feel it just as often as, as women. Well, I have no data to support that. So I can't say it's just as often, but I don't think it's gender specific. I've been fortunate while I, I, I know I haven't done the best job at all times in the submarine force. We do have a great structure of preparing uh, every one of our officers to go to the next sea tour. So as a junior officer, you go through a lot of training before you ever get to the submarine, and you always go back to a schoolhouse or more before you go back to sea. Uh, so again, while you show up on the first day, you don't know how great you're doing, a lot of lessons to learn. Uh, I never felt, I won't paraphrase it uh, or characterize it as, as imposter syndrome, me personally. Thanks, and, and thank you again for your you know, continued candor in, in all of this. Okay, so we're going to take one more audience question, and then we will move on to our closing since we're, we're about 12.55 right now. Um, so this is a question for all the panelists. How do you see the junior officers who are women today who are joining the ranks? Do you see things changing for them? And if so, what way? And if not, I guess why not? Who wants to go first? Jenny wants to go first. Go ahead. I mean, I'm not, again, I'll just go ahead and I'll live up to my call sign. Um, 
At any rate, yes, I mean, things are definitely changing. In the 20 years I've been in the Marine Corps, so much has changed. Uh, just, just looking at the fact that there's no more women in service restriction, that we can be anywhere, that's huge. When I first joined, you know, I was one of the first women in my community because aviation had just opened up to women. Um, and women weren't sticking around so there was really hard to see a lot of, uh, really a lot to ha hard to have a lot of female mentors in the Marine Corps, which let's be, let's be very clear. It was the male mentors that I had in my junior ranks that are the reason I stuck around because I had no female mentors until I started um, becoming in the more senior ranks and reaching out to women in different communities. Cause I am the most senior woman in my community. Um, so my point is, yeah, a lot's changed. Attitudes have changed, particularly in the younger ranks. I'm seeing a lot of that changing, but a lot of that's also tied to society. So um, as society grows and changes, so will the Marine Corps, though. The Marine Corps does tend to be a little bit mm, slower in some ways to change, but I will give the Marine Corps this credit for sure. Once it makes this decision to do something, it goes all in. No halfways. And I want to ask Misty to answer that too, but first, Janine, can you tell the audience your call sign since you brought it up? <laughs> My call sign is ATIS, capital A, capital T, capital I, capital S. You can Google it to find out what it means, but it has to do with aviation. Thank you. And Misty, uh, and this will be the, the last bit, and then we will close up. Thank you. Um, thank you, Jeanette. Yeah, I, I was going to say that I, I agree with Janine. Things are so much there's things are so much better now um, on so many levels than they used to be. There's so much more opportunity, so much more support. There was a time when if you were a marine woman and you got pregnant, you were forced out. Um, now there's so and, and I know there's so much room for improvement, but things are so much better. And I I'm, I tend to be an optimist. Now to be fair, um, when those uh, service restrictions were lifted, there was a little bit of a backlash. I think some things got worse, you know, they had kind of been dormant for a while, um, some of the attitudes, and they kind of got stirred up a little bit when the restrictions were lifted. So there's a little bit of a backlash, but I think um, overall things are, are much better. And if anybody wants to, to talk offline, I was very close to the, um, to the planning that went into um, uh, lifting those restrictions and, and um, having a plan for how we were going to uh, move forward after the restrictions were lifted and, and there was so much I learned from that and I'm happy to share that with anyone who wants to uh, get together offline and um, in case I don't have the chance to speak again I just want to say thank you to uh, Jeanette and Kai for including me um, for creating this uh, project for including me in it um, you're, you're an inspiration I want to say thank you to um, Dave and Janine for your comments I was taking notes and I am going to google what is it ATIS and, and um, I just want to thank Thank everyone who's, who's been listening. And, and thank you. Thank you all. And thank you all for, for joining us. Um, unfortunately, this is going to have to bring our program to uh, close. We really thank each and every one of you for spending time with us. We were hoping we'd all be able to get together for lunch today, but Nick's best thing that we can um, all still, still do it this way. Um, it is a, 
a, a treat to get to hear from uh, Janine and Misty and, and Dave, you know, even Janine that I have known now for years, I always learn something new too um, every time we, we dig in. So this is a, a huge treat for us. Um, Misty, give the comment on our best uh, when, you, uh, when, when you see them here as, as well. And um, still, you know, things could be wrong and you could be having a girl and Athena's a really good name. So we'll just, you know, throw, throw it out there um, for, for that too. Um, we're really sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions today. There's some really great ones. Um, we will be addressing all these questions again. And you can continue to submit questions by using the hashtag CNAS underscore MVS. And we will, we will consolidate all those questions, um, get to them to our panelists for answers and get them out via um, Twitter. We uh, would love to get your feedback as well as to any other topics or people you'd like to hear from in future events that we are developing with Athena. And thank you all. Thank you to CNAS and to Kayla Williams, Emily Moore, and Natalie Grogan for your support. Um, it, this has been fantastic, and I was really excited that we got the chance to do this. Enjoyed it immensely and wish we could just keep going. Um, thank you to our three amazing panelists for your contributions and for your time and the thought that you each obviously gave your answers leading up to this. Thank you to every one of the audience members for tuning in today and your support. This will be released by CNAS as an audio recording in the next few days, and Kai and I will develop a policy brief from these observations. Um, so please stay tuned for future events and for what comes out of this. Um, in the meantime, please stay in touch, please stay safe and well, and send us your ideas. And thank you so much. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>